passage we're going to be looking at in Revelation 6 uh, shows God to be a God that all the earth should fear. Uh, I'm reading from the majority text. It's printed on page 17 of your bulletins. <clears throat> and I saw just when he opened the sixth seal, there was a severe earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth like a fig tree drops its late figs when shaken by a strong wind, and the sky was split like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the mighty and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that as I preach it, that this would be a word that would transform our lives, give us a vision of your greatness, and give us faith that through Christ we can do all things. Uh, he is the one who enables us to conquer. And so we pray for your blessing now in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Well, I've come to a section that uh, most of my preterist and partial preterist buddies uh, say that this has to be purely symbolic. I beg to differ with them. Uh, they claim that John is using hyperbolic language, that it cannot possibly be fulfilled. One of my commentaries say, well, we don't have any record of any earthquake at this period of time. Now, we've been tracing from 30 AD all the way up year by year that there is a perfect progression, and we would expect there is a perfect progression here. Um, I've narrowed this down to May of 66 AD, okay? And they say, well, it just cannot have possibly happened the way it is written here. Uh, Reasoner says the sixth seal can no more be interpreted literally than can the four horsemen. But we've already seen that the spiritual realm is a part of the real universe. Don't ever exclude it, angels from the universe. And that there were real angelic riders who were riding real horse-like creatures in the demonic realm. Uh, so if you mean by literal that they're real, well, yeah, it's literal. Uh, if you mean by literal that, uh, you know, that this is uh, humans with with flesh and blood horses and that it's all restricted to the earth? Well, no, but that's an artificial uh, meaning of literal. Literatus is a Latin word that refers to the normal sense of literature, okay? And um, a simple reading of the, the text that he referred to shows that he's not just talking about uh, ordinary horses. The text is quite clear. There are extraordinary horses, horsemen from the angelic realm but still real. Now, a commentator might respond by pointing out that the Apostle John starts this book by saying he's going to communicate to us in symbols. And that's true. He did say that. But I also pointed out that he said that these are representing actual things that happen in history uh, in the same verse. So I don't think you should approach the book of Revelation as either or. Either it's symbolic and it doesn't refer to history, or you take it literal and it can't be symbolic. Uh, it's my contention that most of the symbols of the Old and the New Testament are in some way rooted in history. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, it is symbolic of the fact that Israel was to be cursed within that generation, but it's still a literal fig tree, right? Still a literal curse. It, it withered up. It, it was not purely symbolic. It's a, it's a meshing of the truth. And we pointed out before that when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, yes, it is a symbol of Christ being struck on the cross so that we could have the Spirit, but there was still a literal rock struck, literal water that gushed out of that rock. Uh, when the ten plagues came upon Egypt, it was symbolic of the fact that the gods of Egypt are being judged by God, and Jehovah is greater than the gods of Egypt. So it's symbolic, 
but there were still literal plagues that fell upon Egypt. And that's the way that I take each of the symbols in verses 12 through 17. Even though Mounts is a premillennialist, I think he's correct when he says of this passage, we need not expect that these cataclysmic events will take place in a completely literal sense. Well, maybe I disagree with that, but he goes on, he says, although whatever they depict is sufficient to drive people in terror to the mountains where they plead for death rather than face the wrath of the Lamb, an unlikely consequence if they symbolize no more than social and political upheavals. And I think even though he's got his timing wrong, I think he's correct in his conclusion. There had to be something stupendous in history to make these people flee and hide the way this passage describes them as hiding. So I'm going to uh, attempt to show the historicity of the symbols first and then show what it symbolized. It's my belief that each of these cataclysmic events happened in May of 8066, just as they are described, and God caused these things to happen in order to warn his people of kingdom realities that were happening. Now, in a sense, you could think of it as the physical creation responding to heaven's movements. Okay, that's one way of thinking of it. Verse 12 gives the first cataclysmic event. And I saw just when he opened the sixth seal that there was a severe earthquake. And I think it's so cool to see the immediate response of creation to Christ's will. It is instantaneous. When he speaks, it is done. When he opens the seal, the creation itself is moving forward. Christ's plans of judgment and of grace. Don't ever think of sunshine and rain and tornadoes and earthquakes as being freak random events. All creation is under God's providence, and since Jesus is now sitting on the throne, all, all, all of creation responds to him. Creation serves his kingdom purposes. Now, I want to take a look at how severe this earthquake was. Uh, the last half of verse 14 tells us, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now, one would think that an earthquake of that magnitude would be recorded in history. My preterist commentaries say nothing of that magnitude happened in AD 66, uh, so this must be purely symbolic. Well, you know me, I, I don't take no for an answer, so uh, I've been doing a lot of checking in this past week, and I've uh, read, uh, I come across several very uh, academic uh, histories of seismology, uh, other books that deal with um, uh, the, uh, uh, some of the astronomy and things of that nature, a whole bunch of articles. I happen to belong to an online database that has over a million books. Didn't get to read all of them, <laughs> but it has pretty good uh, search uh, capabilities on it. And I came up with a rather well-documented earthquake in AD 66 that was actually reported throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, we're gonna be seeing something absolutely massive. Keep in mind that we don't have a lot of history for this period, so I find it pretty interesting that there are as many references to this earthquake as there, as there are. And this earthquake didn't just seem to follow one fault line. Now, the little evidence we have seems to indicate that there was at least an interaction of the Aegean and Anatolian microplates with the African and the Eurasian tectonic plates. It was very, very widespread. And I know some of you are struggling to read the tiny print on those boxes. I should have made them a lot bigger on the reverse side. But I put a map into your outline to the whole Mediterranean region that was affected from Africa in the south to the Aegean plate in the middle, the Anatolian plate up north where Turkey uh, currently is. And I'm not going to quote from all of the books that reference this 8066 uh, earthquake, but I'm going to spend more time on this because you won't find it in, in your commentaries. A lot of this stuff wasn't published till the last 10 years or so. But I have footnoted the references if you want to search it out a bit more. Now, one of the technical articles I found uh, very helpful is from a journal called Science of Tsunami Hazards. It's written by George Pararis Karianis, and he shows that of the 613 historically documented earthquakes in the Mediterranean region from the time of Christ to the present, see he's only looking at 2,000 years, some of the other books looked at 4,000, but the four biggest earthquakes, according to him, were 
Take a wild guess. 8066, 365, 813.03. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't uh, big earthquakes earlier than that, but those were the biggest four. And if you know anything about some of the other, which I happen to know, some of the other earthquakes were absolutely massive. So if these four were the biggest, they must have been incredibly massive. His guess was that the tsunami that hit Crete as a result of the earthquake did not exceed uh, nine meters, which is 30 feet tall, uh, simply because of the extensive crustal upthrust. Uh, could have been a lot bigger, a lot taller than that if the terrain had been shaped differently. But he demonstrates how all four of those earthquakes very literally made mountains and islands either rise or fall. And we'll get to that in a bit and look at some of the other supporting evidence from other sources. But there is no reason we cannot take verse 14 literally. The earthquake that shook every mountain, moved every island, it does symbolize something. But right now we're just looking at the historicity of it. And I want you to encourage you not to go too far in the other direction. As I go through each of these symbols, I'm going to be demonstrating that they cannot possibly be taken as referring to the dissolution of the world and the universe, the way many amillennialists and the, uh, many premillennialists take that. And why do I say that? Well, for one thing, it takes that paragraph completely out of context, out of historical sequence. It's just like, okay, why is it talk about a whole bunch of other things happening afterwards? But more importantly, it ignores the immediate, immediate context of verses 15 through 17, which are the result of verses 12 through 14. And those verses indicate that men are hiding as a result of the earthquake and the sky receding like a scroll and the stars falling to the earth. They're scared by it, but they're not killed by it. And the next chapters speak of more history following in sequence. Whatever these stunning events were, they were not at the end of history. Now, before I show the scientific uh, documentation of the moving of islands and mountains, let me talk about some of the historians uh, who spoke of this earthquake. Josephus is usually my main go-to historian because he actually was there. He, he witnessed the war. And he references this earthquake. Now, it's true that he only references it as a passing uh, reference. He's far more preoccupied with the heavenly signs uh, that scared the daylights out of everybody. I mean, I would have been wowed by, you know, the meteorite falls and the sun turning dark and the moon turning blood red and the sky all of a sudden at one point peeling open and through the portal there's all of these chariots, you know, tearing at uh, the cities of Jerusalem. So I can understand why he's more preoccupied with that than he was with, with the, the earthquake. But in any case, after referring to the natural and supernatural heavenly signs, Josephus says, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. Now, he doesn't tell us what the noise of that earthquake sounded like, but he just said it's a great noise. He dates the earthquake to Pentecost of the year that the Jewish rebellion began, which would be spring of AD 66. And since he was a witness of the war, and he gives the month and the date, we'll use that AD 66 earthquake as an anchor point, and we're going to try to see how widespread the shaking of the earth was. But his dating fits my exegetical mapping of the time frame of chapters uh, 4 through 11 perfectly. So that's encouraging. Too many commentators try to fit the text of Scripture into historical events. That's backwards. No, 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 no. Only the Bible is inspired. Only the Bible is inerrant. And so you, 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 you try to look at what the exegesis of the book itself would mandate uh, the, 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 the timing to be, and then you see if any historical evidence fits into that, and it does. Now, we know that Laodicea was leveled by this earthquake in 8066, and it was not rebuilt for another 160 years. What is significant about Laodicea is that it had been ruined by a massive earthquake six years earlier in 60 AD, and yet was sufficiently wealthy, was able to rebuild itself in four years. Remember, we looked at that in chapter 3. Nero had offered. It was such a bad disaster, just like uh, all of our presidents today. Oh, we'll give you some aid. And they said, no, 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 we don't want your aid. I wish cities would do that more today. We don't want your aid. We'll rebuild ourselves. Thank you. And they did in four years. And so there was a, a big contrast 
between that huge massive earthquake in AD 60 in which they rebuilt in four years and this earthquake which they did not recover from until the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Now it's true there was some half-hearted attempt at rebuilding under the uh, reign of Hadrian who ruled from 117 to 138 but numerous books have documented that it was not fully rebuilt until sometime in the reign of Marcus Aurelius, who ruled from 161 to 180. So that's just one of many hints that we're going to look at at the magnitude of this earthquake. And by the way, this is, I like rabbit trails, right? This is one of those proofs that the book of Revelation could not have been written later than AD 66. I believe Revelation uh, was written somewhere between January and March of AD 66. But think of it. If the city of Laodicea was completely destroyed in AD 66 and abandoned, there would be no city to write to in AD 95, the way many people uh, date the book of Revelation. It didn't make sense for John to write an epistle to the church in Laodicea, call them rich and wealthy and self-sufficient, if the city wasn't even rebuilt to the second century. Eusebius says that Colossae and Hierapolis were also ruined by that earthquake. I haven't taken the time to uh, see to what extent that they were uh, ruined. So that also adds to the difficulty in believing it in a late date. Uh, Ken Gentry has written a fabulous book on the dating of this um, um, book of Revelation. It's called, yeah, what is it called? Anyway, ask me afterwards and uh, yeah, the dating, um, whatever. It, he's written a great book, believe me. <laughs> it's a fat book, and it's actually not boring. Uh, he deals with all kinds of cool historical uh, evidences. This is one evidence that he does not bring up in the book, mainly because some of this evidence has really only come out in recent years. But uh, he's got a ton of evidence that are out there. But anyway, if you're putting marks on a map, uh, you'd have an earthquake star uh, in Jerusalem, You'd have three documented stars on the mainland way up north in Turkey, but there are other places you'd need to put stars on the map. Several historical studies by seismologists have found evidence of earthquakes and tsunamis affecting every portion of the Mediterranean map that I've given to you, including the islands. All the tectonic plate regions I have put on the map seem to have been affected, but there's a fair bit of evidence of an earthquake in Greece and Italy, a receding of the sea by one mile from Crete and then a returning tsunami or tidal wave, volcanic activity in the region, islands being shaken, at least one new island being formed all in the spring of AD 66. Papadopoulos and Vasilopoulou, both of whom are experts in ancient seismology, mention a, a massive earthquake in AD 66 that totally destroyed the cities on the island of Crete and created tidal waves, and they base that on historical references that tie that earthquake to the 13th year of Nero. Well, everybody knows the 13th year of Nero is AD 66. Another book documenting earthquakes and tsunamis over a 4,000-year period speaks of the volcano of Santorini erupting in AD 66, the islands and the agency being shaken, later being inundated by a tidal wave, so already we've got a whole bunch of stars, and hopefully you're getting the feeling, which I'm hoping you're getting the feeling anyway, that the, the earthquake was not only severe, very, very widespread. The ancient writer Lucius Septimius also says that this earthquake was felt in the island of Crete, that it was so violent that it opened the ancient tomb of Dictus, a tomb that had survived numerous uh, earthquakes. And it's actually a rather interesting a story. The fissure was wide enough that some shepherds who came along after the earthquake was uh, done uh, looked inside. They saw this metal box in the tomb, and so they, they crawled into the tomb to plunder it, thinking they're going to get wealthy. And they opened it up, and so disappointing. All that was in there was a whole bunch of, um, of uh, wooden tablets that had writing on it, and they couldn't read the writing, so they took it to their master. Their master gave it to an aristocrat. The aristocrat recognized that this is a stupendous find. He sent this on to Nero, and Nero had it translated into Latin and Greek, and that's how we know the story of, uh, of Dictus. Dictus 
was an eyewitness of the Trojan War. So instead of reading the fables of the Greeks, you can read Dictus's eyewitness account, which is a little bit different. And, um, and so it was a colossal uh, find at the time. But in any case, that earthquake took place at the same time as the earthquake in Israel, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. I have a couple dozen scholarly books that link a massive earthquake to this year. Another seismologist shows evidence that all the islands of the Ionian and the Aegean Seas, the Eastern Mediterranean and the Western Mediterranean Basin were impacted. So the stars that we're placing on documented accounts of this earthquake are really begin to pile up. Now, what is meant by the moving of islands and the moving of mountains? Is that simply hyperbole, as many commentators state? I don't think so. Earlier I referenced the seismologist who said that the four biggest earthquakes in the region were the ones in 8066, 365, 800, 1303. And he's not dogmatic on whether the first two um, uh, contributed to all of this uh, change uh, but, uh, or whether you know, all four of them were. But he was dogmatic that the mountains and islands were moved upwards or downwards by each of those quakes. The structures of the plates almost guarantees it. And his conclusions are not based simply on the science of techton uh, tech, uh, tectonics, but also on archeological digs, which we won't get into today. So it's my opinion that we can take verse 14 literally. Let me just read you a couple of quotes from his uh, conclusions uh, from the various complicated studies. He says, tectonic collisions and alpine orogenesis resulted in further complex geotectonic deformations that created the Hellenic orogenic tectonic belt, the long range of mountains that traverse the western side of the Aegean microplate. These tectonic processes continued to stress and fold the Earth's upper crust in the region, thus forming more islands, more mainland mass, and lifting the mountains of Greece to greater heights. The active tectonic interaction and collision of the converging African and Eurasian plates along the entire eastern Mediterranean margin resulted in multiple subduction zones, post-orogenic basins, accretionary margins, neogenic crust shortening, and extreme seismicity and volcanism, processes that continue to the present. There have been numerous scientific and archaeological field and field investigations of raised shorelines and submerged ancient harbors of the eastern Mediterranean that are indicative of major crustal displacements associated with significant earthquakes. Field studies of salt deposition and of erosional features indicate that the upward crustal displacements raised the land by as much as 6.66 meters on average above the ancient sea level, corrected for eustatic sea level variation. Maximum uplift in one area was as much as 9.9 .9 meters. Now, for those of you who don't like the met metric system, that reference to 9.9 .9 meters means that the land was lifted 32.48 feet. That's not insignificant. For the land to be going up 32 and a half feet, that would be a terrifying moving of the mountains and of the islands. It would be terrifying. Anyway, this article gives example after example of the changes to the features of the mainland and the various islands of the Mediterranean. In Crete, he points to two massive tsunami deposits, one pointing to 8066, the other pointing to 8365. So even though all of these are just secular attempts to look at the history of seismic activity in the Mediterranean, they give confirmatory evidence to verse 14. Not that evidence is needed. You don't need evidence, you just follow the text, right? And if it says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You believe it. I believe all of these things happened in AD 66, long before I had read any of this confirmatory evidence. I just, exegesis was enough. Now let me explain that it's likely that the every mountain and every island is a reference to geological changes only in the Roman Empire not necessarily in China or other regions of the world. Now, who knows? God could have moved islands and the other regions, but I'm basing that just on 
how, how the Apostle John uses the vocabulary of geography in the Gospel of John as well as in the book of Revelation. He didn't use it of the whole uh, planet. He, he's referring constantly to the Roman Empire. So that's the first major cosmic disturbance that resulted from Jesus opening the sixth seal. He is a sovereign you do not want to mess around with. Okay, When his hand moves in judgment, the earth itself responds. The next cosmic disturbance relates to sun, moon, and stars, verses 12 through 13. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth like a fig tree drops its late figs when shaken by a strong wind. Now keep in mind that even the most literalistic of premillennialist uh, authors does not believe that the term star has reference to what modern scientists call stars. Technically, the closest star is our sun, and it could hardly fall to the earth and still allow the rest of verses 15 through 17 to continue to happen, right? For people to be saying, oh, wow, we need to hide uh, from this. Earth would be melted long before the sun traveled the 93 million miles that it is distant from us. Now, scientists say our sun is just a medium-sized star, and yet you could fit this is just to show the ridiculousness of some people's interpretations. You could fit 1.3 million planet Earths into the sun. Um, so in any case, according to our passage, if you take it as normal language, what I refer to as literally, the sun continues to exist while the stars are falling to the earth. Yes, it becomes dark for a time, but it continues to exist, so at least that star didn't fall to the earth. Uh, the nearest, next nearest star, Alpha Centauri, is 25.6 trillion miles away, and even if it came toward us at the speed of light, it wouldn't be able to get to the Earth at the same time as all of the other stars, which are multiplied trillions of miles away. We would be toast long before those stars came to Earth. In any case, the sun would not be dark. We wouldn't be worried about that. And the moon would not be turned to blood. You wouldn't be worried about that either. Okay, they wouldn't exist. Everything would be vaporized if multiple scientific-type stars fell to the earth. It doesn't even make sense to talk about them falling to the earth. So I want you to put out of your mind the disillusion of the universe. If this was indeed intended to describe the disillusion of the universe, which 2 Peter 3 does describe, but if this was intended to do that, then you really can't take these verses literally because people continue to exist and run and talk and hide after the stars have fallen to the earth. Can you see the problem? Okay? And my interpretation really is um, much more literal than the typical dispensationalist interpretation. They pride themselves on being literal. And they say, we're just symbolicists. No, I say there's literal <laughs> events in history that are symbolical. And my interpretation can account for every phrase and time sequence, whereas theirs cannot. The fact of the matter is that any dictionary will tell you that the Greek word for star, asteris, refers to any small light in the sky, whether planets, stars, or meteorites. So, if the ancients were living today and they saw a satellite, and they knew it was a satellite, they knew it was a man-made light in the sky, they saw a satellite going across the sky, they would call it an asteris. Okay, a star. They had other descriptors of what kind of star they were referring to, whether a comet, a planet, a sun, or a meteorite. They knew the difference, but they called them all stars. And any of the ancients knew that when you're referring to stars falling to the earth, you are not referring to planets falling to the earth, but to meteorites falling to the earth. Does that make sense? They were not idiots. These guys knew astronomy better than anybody in this congregation, a lot of those guys. They knew astronomy. So, when they talked about falling stars, they meant meteorites, plain and simple. So, back to our passage. If we're to interpret these words in their plain and ordinary sense, they were fulfilled to a T in the first century. One time I saw a meteorite display in Ethiopia that was so thick, it lit up the sky. A lot of people are skeptical of that even happening if they've not seen it themselves. There have been numerous documented sightings. E.P. Woodward describes a particularly brilliant display of meteorites in 1833 that was documented, could not be chalked up to exaggeration. He says they fell in countless thousands 
were visible throughout the whole northern hemisphere, alarming people on both continents, and they were variously described as a rain of fire, a celestial bombardment, a luminous network of fire, too wonderful and too surprising to describe, a maze of radiance and like expressions. A full description of both aurora and falling stars is contained in The Great Consummation. That's a book. Uh, taking all these facts into consideration, the most earnest literalist could not demand a more exact fulfillment of Christ's prediction that there should be signs in sun, moon, and stars. That's E.P. Woodward. Not only was that the year for Halley's Comet, and I've looked on NASA's website and all kinds of confirmatory evidence, so not only was it the year for Halley's Comet, but Josephus speaks of numerous signs in the sky, what he calls portents, such as a sword hanging over Jerusalem. Okay, so it was hanging over there for a whole year. Now, some have puzzled over that sword. They say, what in the world, uh, sword, what would cause that? I just take it as a supernatural light, but some people have tried to explain it uh, recently when they've realized the massive meteorite dust, meteorites, and meteors that were in the region. They've tried to explain it in light of the picture I've put into your outline. Back in 1998 in um, uh, Italy, um, there was such a meteorite um, display of falling that for a long time that what looks like a sword was hanging uh, in the air. Could it have been something like that? Could have, who knows. But with two comets being prominently on display in 8065 through 66, the debris from the comets could very well have filled the sky. So there really is absolutely no problem in talking about stars falling to the earth. What about the moon becoming like blood? Well, some of you just recently saw a blood red moon, right? Uh, right here in Omaha. Uh, the blood-red moon is a common feature, so its occurrence in AD 66, not difficult to explain. Uh, NASA's eclipse table shows that this blood-red moon may well have been an eclipse that happened in that year, but it could be due to any number of atmospheric conditions that can produce a red moon. I, I don't think we need to even delve into that. That's pretty easy to explain. What about the darkening of the sun? We have three historians who spoke of the sun being darkened during the reign of Nero. Unfortunately, and I'm shaking my fist at those historians, they didn't say what year it was in <laughs> or what month or what day it was in. Now, in looking through NASA's data on solar eclipses, the only solar eclipse to take place in that year was either June 11 or on December 5. On, on my exegetical timeline, that's too late. June 11 was pretty close, but it's too late. And I'm convinced it wasn't a solar eclipse anyway. That wouldn't have brought fear to these people. They know astronomy. We're talking about something that brings fear, right? The Russian scholar Velikovsky has his own explanations based on meteorite dust. Another scholar has it related to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Totally disagree with him. He dates Mount Vesuvius eruption as AD 66. Uh, I date it as AD 79. So I don't think that explanation works. Could it have been natural phenomenon? It could have, but I have no problem with saying that it was a supernatural darkness such as happened at the crucifixion and at other times in history. The historian Tacitus was very, very familiar with solar eclipses, and I find it interesting that when he's describing these darkenings of the sun in the latter years of uh, Nero's reign, that he does not describe them as eclipses. Rather, he records, quote, a thick succession of portents that occurred in his last years. A portent is a supernatural event that Tacitus thought must signal a disaster. Now, let me just give you one. Then the sun was suddenly darkened, and the 14 districts of the city were struck by lightning. Now, some people apply that quote from Tacitus to here, but I tell you, his dating is so nebulous, it's hard to know. It could have occurred uh, earlier. But to skeptics who say uh, that they have a hard time believing there is any supernatural darkening, I just say, hey, the, the Roman historians, the Jewish historians spoke of these supernatural darkenings a number of times uh, over a 1,000-year course of history that they, that, they, that they spoke of. And this could have been one of those 
thick succession of portents that he speaks of. The bottom line is that if the text says that the sun was darkened during this period, I have no reason to doubt it. Uh, the darkening of the sun that occurred in a couple of years in 68 AD is clearly referenced by ancient historians. And this particular darkening may be what Tacitus refers to, though we really don't know. Well, we come now to the cosmic disturbance that generates the most skepticism. It is the opening up of the sky and the appearance of a theophany. Verse 14 says, and the sky was split like a scroll being rolled up. And verse 16 shows what the men saw in the sky that frightened them. Once heaven was open, they must have seen Christ and his armies because verse 16 says, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, when they're talking to mountains, please hide us, it shows a bit of irrationality. It shows that they are scared witless. And the phrase, um, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, implies that they can see his face. They see something that is terrifying. And ancient uh, non-Christian historians describe a terrifying sight that perfectly fits the evidence of Matthew 24 and of this passage. And actually, ancient histories refer to three sightings. Uh, I find this interesting. I don't know quite what to do with it yet, but three sightings uh, of, of um, uh, these heavenly armies. Uh, one was in AD 66 at the beginning of the war. One is in AD 68, June of AD 68, when Nero died and one is in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. I'm just gonna look at the first one. Let's look at the timing first. Timing of this paragraph fits the words of Matthew 24, which says, immediately after the tribulation, so I've gotta take that, some people invert all of these time phrases, but it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Well, the timing of these verses occurs immediately after the three-and-a-half-year tribulation of the Jews against Christians. These events ended Jewish persecution, at least the official Jewish persecution, because Israel broke covenant with Rome. Rome came to fight against Israel. So Revelation 6, if you take a look at the paragraphs there, Revelation 6, 12 through 16, occurs immediately after the great tribulation of verses 9 through 11. We've already demonstrated that verses 9 through 11 is 62 through 66 AD. And chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, talks about the remaining Jewish Christians being preserved for the next three and a half years when Israel is warred against. So they're completely protected from God's wrath. They're completely protected. No more persecution from the Jews for those three and a half years. No tribulation. So the timing is very, very precise. So let's take a look at the fulfillment. The first reference to this opening up of the sky and appearance of a man in the heavens is by a non-Jewish, I mean, I mean non-Christian Jewish writer by the name of Yosipon. This ancient work is just recently translated out of Hebrew into English so it's a fairly new find. Sefer Yosepan describes what Jews saw just before the outbreak of the war. He starts with Passover of AD 66 and then moves on to describe our event at Pentecost, which is just a few days later. He says, for one year before Vespasian came, a single great star shining like unsheathed swords was seen over the temple. And in those days when the sign was seen, it was the holiday of Passover. And during that entire night, the temple was lit up and illuminated like the light of day. And thus it was all seven days of the Passover. All the sages of Jerusalem knew that it was a malevolent sign, but the rest of the ignorant people said that it was a benevolent sign. And then he describes... Uh, what happened in May of 66. He says, Now it happened after this that there was seen from above over the Holy of Holies for the whole night the outline of a man's face, the like of whose beauty had never been seen in all the land, and his appearance was quite awesome. So this non-Christian Jew is describing the appearance of a theophany in the sky in the shape of a man 
of stupendous size and having a beauty that was awe-inspiring. Now, what happens as a result? He goes on to say, there were seen chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem and all the land of Judah, all of them horses of fire and riders of fire. When the holiday of Shavuot came in those days during the night, the priests heard within the temple something like the sound of men going and the sound of men marching and a multitude going into the temple and a terrible and mighty voice was heard speaking, let's go and leave this house. Now this unbelieving Jew has no reason to be making up stuff like this because Christians could use it to prove the truth of Christianity, to prove the truth of Christ's prediction that he's going to come within one generation to destroy uh, Israel. So I think the fact that it's a Jewish uh, testimony, a Jewish historian, it, it makes it very, very strong. An ancient Christian historian from the fourth century wrote a history of this war that was based on uh, earlier Jewish histories, plural, that he had in his possession. He said, also after many days, a certain figure appeared of tremendous size, which many saw, just as the books of the Jews have disclosed. And before the setting of the sun, there were suddenly seen in the clouds chariots and armed battle arrays by which cities of all Judea and its territories were invaded. Moreover, in the celebration itself of the Pentecost, the priests entered the interior of the temple at nighttime that they might celebrate the usual sacrifices, asserted themselves at first to have felt a certain movement and a sound given forth, afterwards even to have heard shouted in a sudden voice, we cross over from here. So this historian talks about older Jewish eyewitnesses and Jewish writings, plural, that also spoke of an incredibly tall figure in the sky who had fiery chariots following him in battle array. Those ancient Jewish histories are now lost, but this Christian historian had them in his possession. I think uh, because of his Christian state, we can trust him. This was no doubt Christ coming to judge Israel within one generation, just as he promised. Another non-Christian Jew who witnessed most of the war is Josephus. He says, thus there was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city and a comet that continued a whole year. Thus also before the Jews' rebellion and before those commotions were, which preceded the war, when the people were come in great crowds to the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the eighth day of the month of Xantikos, at the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone around the altar in the holy house that it appeared to be bright daytime, which light lasted for half an hour. This light seemed to be a good sign to the unskilled, but was so interpreted by the sacred scribes as to portend those events that followed immediately upon it. So these publicly declared that this signal foreshadowed the desolation that was coming upon them. Besides these, a few days after that feast, on the 21st day of the month Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it. And were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals? For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers and their armor were seen, running among the clouds and surrounding of cities. Moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after that they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. Now, I'm spending quite a bit of time on this passage because there's so much skepticism out there uh, on this interpretation. The first century Roman historian, Tacitus, also records many of these same miracles. I'll just read one section. Prodigies had occurred, which this nation, prone to superstition, but hating all religious rites, did not deem it lawful to expiate by offering and sacrifice. There had been seen hosts joining battle in the skies, the fiery gleam of arms. I mean, this is a guy who is such a skeptic on many other things, but he's saying exactly the same thing. The fiery gleam of arms, the temple illuminated by sudden radiance from the clouds, the doors of the inner shrine were suddenly thrown open, and a voice of more than mortal tone was heard to cry that the gods were departing. At the same instant, there was a mighty stirs of a departure. Some few put a fearful meaning on these events, but in most, there was a firm persuasion 
that in the ancient records of their priests was contained a prediction of how at this very time in the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. So Tacitus explains how the Jews explained it away, tried to put a positive spin upon it, but even the Christ-hating Mishnah speaks of this event in Midrash Rabbah Lamentations 2.11. I'm going to give one more quote, this one from the fourth century Christian historian Eusebius. Eusebius had access to earlier Christian records that have been lost, but he was a Christian. I think we can trust him. He was one of the fathers. He says, but not many days after the feast, on the 21st of the month of Artemisium, a wonderful specter was seen. So it's this, this huge vision of the man again. And it surpasses all belief. And indeed, that which I am about to tell would appear a prodigy were it not related by those who had seen it, and unless the subsequent miseries had corresponded to the signs. For before the setting of the sun, there were seen chariots and armed troops on high wheeling through the clouds around the whole region and surrounding the cities. And at the festival called Pentecost, the priests entering the temple at night, according to their custom, to perform the service, said they first perceived a motion and noise, and after this, a confused voice saying, let us go hence. Okay, I've given you a boatload of information. <laughs> Here's the bottom line. If you are skeptical that each of these events of these verses could not happen in history, then I say to you, you might as well not believe in the 10 plagues of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, Peter walking on the water, Stephen seeing the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. In fact, that one's recorded in Acts. And the very people who are skeptical that anything like that could happen in AD 66 says, oh yeah, it happened in Acts. Well, if it happened in Acts, why can't it happen in AD 66? People tend to be such skeptics. It's hard to convince them uh, of the truth. But here's the caution. We shouldn't believe Revelation because we find quotes from historians that these events did occur. We should believe them because the text of Scripture says that they would occur. And when you trace out the sequence of events from chapter 4 to chapter 11, this event had to happen in 8066. It just so happens that we have a lot of historical witnesses that it did. Okay, we're not going to spend as much time on the meaning of these symbols. Uh, we're going to whiz through them. But uh, verse 12 begins with a phrase we've commented on a lot. It says, and I saw just when he opened the sixth seal. So Jesus opens the seal, means he's the Lord of history, right? And I've commented on that sufficiently. I don't need to say more. He goes on, there was a severe earthquake. We dealt with the historical earthquake. But Haggai 2, 6 through 7, and verses 21 through 22 predicted a spiritual earthquake that would happen in the first century before the kingdom was fully established and that would begin the process of removing the whole old creation and gradually bringing in the new creation. Well, Hebrews 12 quotes that passage from Haggai and using the present tense and the word now, says that the spiritual shaking of the old covenant is happening now and we're receiving the kingdom now and this process of shaking will eventually leave nothing except that which cannot be shaken. When was Hebrews written? in AD 66, just before uh, this event. And in the next chapter, Hebrews tells the Jewish Christians to not cling to Jerusalem, but to be willing to go outside the camp and receive the kingdom of Christ. Remember, Jesus warned them, they better flee from Jerusalem. So he says this, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one which is about to come. Hebrews 13 verse 14. That's the Greek word "mello," which is about to come. He's warning the Jewish Christians they better flee Jerusalem because Christ's coming in judgment was imminent. So there is a convergence of uh, things about to happen in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Revelation that speaks of the definitive passing away of the old covenant so that the new covenant that Jesus set up with his blood might remain forever. But Hebrews 12 symbolizes all of that with an earthquake. Now, what about the celestial anomalies of meteorites, sun being darkened, and the moon no longer shining? G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson, I think, do a fabulous job of um, tying every one of those symbols almost 
with almost identical language in the Old Testament. I'm not going to bore you with all of that, but you can read it in, in their commentary. Fantastic. But you may remember the vision that Joseph had of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. And his father Jacob immediately caught the drift and asked rather crossly, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? So it can represent human leaders. And there are many other scriptures, the various commentators show, cite, that show that sun, moon, and stars are often symbolic of earthly rulers as well as angelic rulers and principalities and powers. Beale says, there is debate about whether the description depicts an actual disillusion of the cosmos, allowing room for metaphorical language to describe this dissolution, or whether it is a purely figurative description of the fall of ungodly kingdoms. The Old Testament often uses such language in a hyperbolic manner, and I disagree with the hyperbolic part, but anyway, in a hyperbolic manner to depict the fall of kingdoms. Note the defeats of Babylon, Isaiah 13, 10 through 13. Edom, Isaiah 34, verse 4. Egypt, Ezekiel 32, verses 10 through 13. Enemy nations of Israel, Habakkuk 3, 6 through 11, and Israel itself, Joel 2, 10, and 30 through 31. Other examples in the Old Testament of figurative cosmic disruption language include 2 Samuel 22, 8 through 16, figuratively referring to David's victory over his enemies. I happen to believe that there were cosmic literal events that also symbolized all of those uh, different kingdoms. And by the way, I probably shouldn't get into that. I'm taking too much time, but I'll give you the by the way. I believe if you start tracing through some of the major revolutionary upsets in kingdoms in the last 2,000 years, Rushdoony's done some of this. Take a look at some of the phenomena that's happened at the time. Plagues, earthquakes, um, you know, fantastic uh, things uh, that happen in the heavens like meteorite falls and solar eclipses and different things like that. Trace it out. Very, very interesting. It seems like God almost always, when he's making some massive move in history, he makes some kind of signs. So anyway, I I'm not going to make too much of that, but uh, at least not at this point. <clears throat> uh, anyway, um, various other commentaries show how sun, moon, and stars are connected with the Old Covenant festivals, that this, symbolic, this is symbolic of the overthrow of the Old uh, Covenant ceremonial system. I really think they all fit together. The fig tree especially links the judgment to Israel since the fig tree was the symbol of Israel, and the late figs a symbol of its late and spoiled and rotten history. But the overall vision, I think, appears to be much broader than Israel. It at least includes the judgment of Israel's rulers, ending of the Old Covenant, destruction of the temple, but I think it includes the whole Roman Empire. Within two years, Rome will fall apart and undergo violent judgment, and within three and a half years, Jerusalem will be destroyed. So part of the symbolism is the ending of the Old Covenant Part of it refers to the overthrow of the enemies of the church. But here's the question. Who stands behind those human enemies? All the way through this book, we see that demonic armies stand behind those enemies. And since the scripture links sun, moon, and stars to the angelic and the demonic realm, it shows a revolutionary change that is happening in the realm of the angels. And that ties in with the symbolism of the next point with the sky receding, men fearing the face of him who sits on the throne. Christ reveals himself, and John's going to return to this part of history in chapter 12, describing in more detail what happened in AD 66. In chapter 12, he says that this appearance of Christ resulted in a huge battle between Michael the archangel and all of his following angels, and Satan and all of his following angels, and Michael wins, Satan is cast out of heaven, he no longer has access to heaven to accuse the brethren, he's cast down to the earth. And from 8066 and on, the demons no longer can enter heaven. It's cleansed. This means that in 8066, a revolutionary change has happened in Christ's kingdom. Heaven is cleansed from the presence of sin and evil. 
And all those quotes from secular historians that I gave you are probably heaven's armies chasing demonic armies and routing them. And as this book moves forward, we're going to see Satan's territory will be progressively squeezed smaller and smaller regions until finally in chapter 20, Satan's completely cast out of the earth altogether. Because chapter 12 deals with this in detail, I'm not going to say anything more about it uh, right now, but I think you can see because it represents a change that is so significant, it justifies the use of the staggering events that we already looked at in order to symbolize an equally staggering change in heaven and world history. So if you're tallying events in the Revelation timeline, 8066 is the date that John wrote Revelation, probably between January and March. This was also the year that the Great Tribulation ends in the land of Israel, the time when Satan and his angels are cast out of heaven, the time when Israel breaks covenant with Rome, stops offering sacrifices to Rome, the time when civil war starts killing more Jews than the Romans do, also the beginning of God's great wrath against Israel. It's the first of three times when Christ appears in the sky. Now, that's not the second coming, as full preterists try to make it out to be. It's just an appearance. It's a sign. That's what Matthew 24 says, the sign of Christ in the sky. It's not him coming down to the earth physically. But concerning his spiritual coming, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The second coming will be different. It will be a permanent coming to earth, a merging of heaven and earth. Revelation will deal with that later. But even though this is only a spiritual coming, it is not insignificant because liberals use this point to try to destroy Christianity. Liberals constantly mock the Bible, saying that Jesus had repeatedly promised to come in judgment within one generation, within the lifetime of the apostles, and they're all disappointed. And all the apostles keep saying, it's soon, it's soon, it's soon. And they were wrong. Christ and the apostles were wrong. And we say, no, it did happen. And even secular history records say that it happened just as Jesus promised. This is not an inconsequential issue. The inerrancy of Scripture is at stake. When Jesus says that it happened within one generation, we can take his word for it. When the Apostle John said it would be soon, we can take his word for it. Two more things, though, I want to say. Do I have time for two more things? Okay, two more things. First one is the fear of these people. They saw these fearful signs, and it scared them, and it made them flee from him. Now, you can understand why people would be terrified and flee from Christ if they're still rebels and they're unwilling to, to, to submit to him. But we who are redeemed, we need not fear him. If you have cast your sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, you've by faith received his imputed righteousness. God treats you as perfect in Christ. You're secure in Christ. It's almost as if he has clothed you with fireproof suit so you need not fear his wrath. In fact, he goes on in the next chapter, chapter 7, to say that he puts the seal upon those 144,000 so that it's impossible for them to experience God's wrath. We are secure in the Lord Jesus. The second thing that I want to comment on is that evidence alone will not save anyone. Uh, too many people in their apologetics think they can convert people if they give enough evidence. No, no, no. Total depravity makes sure that's not the case. These first century Jews had plenty of evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. They saw his miracles, including the feeding of the thousands that Rodney preached on recently. They knew he was raised from the dead. They, in fact, actually Lazarus. They saw Lazarus was raised from the dead. He that stinketh, you know, already. Uh, he's raised from the dead, and they try to kill him because they don't like the evidence that's there. So they saw the apostles doing miracles, claiming that those miracles are done through the power of Jesus. James preached that the Son of God was about to come in judgment on Israel. And Josephus tells us that the Jews jeered, using James's words, the Jews jeered at the Romans every time they slung one of their catapult stones over the wall and said, the Son is coming. Ha, 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 the sun is coming, S-O-N. It's a reference to Jesus. They're mocking the fact that Jesus is coming. Josephus records that. And here they visibly see Jesus fulfilling his words that he would come within one generation and slay the unbelieving Jews, but it didn't make them believe. 
When they didn't die instantly, they got over it and continued their rebellion. In verse 16, they're even convinced Jesus is right now sitting on his throne, that he is indeed the Lamb, and they still don't trust him. They run from him rather than running to him. In fact, Josephus is absolutely astounded at how quickly the Jews got over these miraculous signs and went on with life as usual. Knowing the truth about Jesus does not save a person. They have to be regenerated before they can believe. These people knew that Jesus was king and Jesus was lamb, <coughs> and yet they persisted in their rejection. In Luke 16, Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, <coughs> and I think this is so powerful. I'm going to read partway through the story. Uh, rich man's in hell, Lazarus is in paradise, and it says, then the rich man cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And you can see that right here. Even though they saw that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he was the Messiah, that he's sitting on his throne, that he is the lamb that can take away the sins of anybody who puts his faith in him, they will not repent and believe. That's the way of the human heart. It's called total depravity or total inability. And by the way, you cannot chalk this up as being a Jewish problem the way some people have. Uh, I want you to turn to chapter 9. And you'll see that this was true of the Romans as well. Chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So even the worst judgments do not bring people to repentance unless God's grace is at work. But, praise God, to anticipate next week, God's grace can convert even the most hardened Jewish unbelievers. Persecutors like Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, and then later on in chapter 7, we'll see that God's grace can convert people from every nation, even though they once worshipped idols and demons. There is no one, no one who is too hard for him to save. And as we seek to advance Christ's kingdom here on earth, we need to realize that no matter how much love we show to people, no matter how much evidence we show to people, they will not repent unless God regenerates them. Have I given a good enough apologetic to be praying? <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Without prayer, uh, it, it's not going to happen. What is impossible with men is possible with God. So ours is the duty. The results are in God's hand, and it's such a privilege to be one of those enemies, those rebels, whom God has changed from being an enemy, converted into a friend, and said, you know, you're my beloved, you're sons and daughters, and I want you now to go out and spread this message, spread my kingdom. It is such a delight, such a joy to be able to serve the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb who has redeemed us. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We are so blessed by your word. When we see that you are the sovereign over all of history and you have put your son now as a sovereign over all of history, it uh, sends shivers down our spines to realize that there is nothing, nothing, nothing outside of your control. And uh, we put far too much faith in the Obamas of this world. We put far too much faith in Satan. We put far too much faith in other evil people who seek to overthrow your kingdom. We know from Psalm 2 that you laugh at them. It is, uh, it is so ridiculous to think that they can overthrow your kingdom. 
But help us, Father, to not have the same ridiculous lack of faith in you. Help us to have a faith that you do indeed govern tornadoes, the sun, the moon, the stars, the nations, rulers, and all things. And as the church itself puts itself in alignment with you and your purposes, as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that uh, we can see uh, the, the kingdom of Christ being advanced. We know that you use even these things to discipline the church. And if we need discipline uh, through some of these ungodly people in our government, uh, Father, we'll submit to that because we want your righteousness more than we want comfort. But we pray that you would more quickly bring repentance to the church of Jesus Christ. Wake her up, bring revival, bring reformation, and cause her to once again have a faith and a hope that will turn the world upside down like the early church did. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.